Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Today on the Quadcast, we continue our series on flourishing with a focus on expanding communities of support for students on campus. I'm Dana Humphrey, Program Manager of the Mary Christie Foundation, filling in for Marjorie Malpedi. We'll be talking to Dr. Zoe Raguzios, the Executive Director of Counseling and Wellness Services at New York University and also the President of the Mary Christie Foundation, and Dr. Sarah Lipson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Law, Policy, and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health and Co-Principal Investigator of the National Healthy Mind Study. They both serve on the board of the Mary Christie Foundation. Sarah, Zoe, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. So let's jump right in. Zoe, at our higher education leadership convening in March, you opened our discussion with a comment about the importance of expanding campus communities of support. Can you explain what does that mean and how does it play out at NYU? Sure. There's a number of reasons that universities need a broad approach to supporting students and that counseling centers can't be the only place that a student can go to for support. This isn't to say that students shouldn't end up in front of a counselor, but how they get to us needs to be reimagined for a few reasons. The first is the issue of stigma. We know that we've done so much over the last 20 years or so to decrease stigma, and we have been successful, and we know this from the ever-increasing numbers of students coming forward asking for clinical care. Nevertheless, mental health problems still remain stigmatized, particularly in certain groups, students of color, international students, students who may feel that their academic record or future career is being affected. So we need alternatives for these students who won't walk through the doors of something called the counseling center. Another reason is that because we have so many people coming through the doors asking for counseling services, and universities are investing significant resources, but at this point it's pretty apparent that we are struggling to keep up. Wait times and short-term treatment may deter some students from coming forward, so we need other sources of support for these students. And finally, not all students need a clinical intervention. With the decrease in stigma, more students and their families are much more interested in clinical care. And there is a normal amount of stress and anxiety and feeling down that a student may face that is not in need of clinical care. They don't need to speak to a counselor. I probably say once a week here at NYU that not every student who's crying needs to come to the counseling service. However, and this is sort of bold in capital letters, that the real work is determining who those students are versus those who do need clinical care and making sure that higher risk students don't fall through the cracks. And I think we've seen a lot of those factors in the research. Sarah, your annual Healthy Mind study provides perhaps the clearest picture we have into the mental health of young adults in college. What does your research tell us about stigma and help-seeking behavior and barriers to getting help? Yeah, so we have data at a population level, meaning regardless of whether or not students are seeking care, we have data from random samples of students on hundreds of campuses across the country. And our data are 
very consistent with what Zoe just mentioned. We've seen a significant increase in the proportion of students on campus who are seeking help through their counseling center. When we began the survey in 2007, it was less than 20% of all students who were seeking help. And now in our most recent year of data, 2019-2020, it's over 35% of students who are seeking help on college campuses. So we've seen this significant increase. And as Zoe said, we've seen a decrease in rates of stigma. There is still a significant treatment gap. So when we look, for example, at help-seeking behavior among students who have a positive screen for major depression, still about 45% of those students are not seeking any form of care. They've they've not received any form of counseling or, or therapy over the past year. And as Zoe mentioned, that treatment gap is much, much wider for certain student populations. So in particular, students of color, international students, and I think a population maybe that Zoe didn't mention is first-generation low-income students. That's another group that is significantly less likely to seek help when in need. And in terms of the barriers that students report, it's really interesting because most of the barriers sort of point to a lack of urgency. Students saying things like, I prefer to deal with issues on my own or the problem's going to get better by itself. These problems are normal in college. And it's really complicated to think about interventions to address this lack of urgency. We know that many students, when they do seek help, they're doing so potentially in a crisis, which is more of a burden on the counseling center. So just as Zoe said, we really need solutions that can identify students early on and can match them with appropriate resources. And, and for many students, that's not you know the most intensive one-on-one services through the counseling center. And we need to try to free up space there so that students who really need that service are able to access it and that we can offer different types of services to students kind of along a continuum of severity. Right. And if 45% of students who are screening positive for depression are not seeking help, we obviously need to find a way to reach them. Zoe, what are some of the important constituencies we should be thinking about when we talk about opening up communities of support? Is it peers, faculty, staff? This is a really easy answer for me, and the answer is all members of a university community, from peers, as you mentioned, to academic advisors, public safety officers, the dining hall staff, the athletic staff, certainly administrators, and particularly the faculty, all have to know how to detect a student in distress and how to intervene appropriately. They also have to know something about prevention, how to not contribute to the problem, how not to pile on, so to speak, how to be part of the solution, and how to support a culture of wellness on the college campus. Mm -hmm. So over the past few years, the role of faculty in particular has become a focal point in discussions about supporting students. Sarah, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the upcoming research project examining faculty perceptions and beliefs about student mental well-being. Absolutely. This is a really exciting new project that I'm so thrilled to be able to lead in collaboration with folks at Mary Christie and with funding through the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. What we are doing, and Zoe's been 
an incredible, offered wonderful insight as we've been working on this project. We are launching a survey of faculty members on campuses across the country. This year will be our pilot year, so we'll be launching it early in 2021 and collecting our initial round of data next semester from samples of faculty, like I said, across the country at all levels. So, you know, assistant professors through faculty who've been on campus for, for decades to understand their perceptions of student mental health, the ways that they're seeing mental health in the classroom environment in terms of their work advising and mentoring students, the gaps that they see, how they feel, you know, prepared and unprepared to support students related to their mental and emotional health and their actual experiences. What are faculty kind of experiencing on the ground working with students? And so this this survey, I think, is going to provide some of the first evidence to understand the role that faculty play. And just as you said, in recent years, there has been a lot more attention to say, you know, faculty are uniquely positioned to recognize if a student is struggling. And I think that's more true now than ever before. Last spring, as we moved to remote learning, I remember, you know, the first class that I taught after we went remote, seeing my students and and then the second class realizing the week later, you know, I was one of, if not the only person at our university who had laid eyes on this group of students and, and it was on Zoom, but still that many of the human resources and networks that are so a part of the college campus just looks so different now and and that faculty are in some cases one of the only constituencies on campus that are regularly seeing students and i think this fall we've you know made a lot of improvements and and campuses are being really really innovative in terms of networks and and supports but i still think that faculty are really uniquely positioned to support student mental health these data that we're going to collect in the spring the entire goal is to be able to inform programs programs and policies that really leverage the potential for faculty to serve as gatekeepers. So we're, you know, not expecting faculty to ever be trained mental health professionals. That's that's not our role, but we do have a role and a responsibility as key members of a campus community to be supporting the well-being of students. And we also know just how much student mental health is a factor in learning. And so faculty can really be able to increase students' learning and academic outcomes if we're able to also support student mental health. So we're really looking forward to having those data and then using the data to really inform practices and policies. Thanks, Sarah. We're so excited to be working with you on that project and to learn what faculty are thinking and feeling about the issue. I know it's something administrators think about as they try to better support their students. Zoe, you have trained faculty at NYU about responding to student mental health concerns. What are some big questions that you tackle in those trainings? Sure. And I'll just start by saying how right Sarah is that faculty are in this unique position to many times be the only ones observing the demeanor of their students week in and week out. They notice when the students aren't there. They notice when their academic performance is declining. And they just notice when a student is not the same as they usually are. And whether they know it or not, faculty have a huge role in a student's feelings of self-worth. Over the years, as I've tried to train faculty, I've been trying to impress upon them how important they are. 
I've trained many faculty over my many years at NYU. Most were voluntary. Some didn't prefer to be there. Sometimes department chairs valued the subject, but every faculty member in the room didn't agree that mental health support was in their job description. And so what I tried to convince them of was that they have the opportunity to give students a good experience with disclosing a concern and then being met with support and guidance. But if they don't know how to best support their students, they can leave them more distressed than before they were engaged with them. Some of the big questions in my conversations with the faculty have been things like why this matters and why you're key to this collective mission that we all have to further well-being of university students, what to notice and what to do when you notice. And then again, back to prevention, how to build a culture of wellness in your classroom so that hopefully we can prevent more students from feeling distress unnecessarily. Yeah. And we've seen this, I think, playing out so much, especially in the spring and this fall under the pandemic, where you can see on social media students giving examples of faculty doing it right, as they would say, with extending deadlines if someone has a family member who's sick or doing things to support their students academically, but it also ends up supporting their mental well-being. Sarah, in your role as a faculty member at BU School of Public Health, does does Zoe's training resonate with you? Is it something that you recognize in your peer faculty members? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot about the role that I have as a faculty member and and the many ways that I can be supporting students and like Zoe said, alleviating undue stress. So I am in a unique position. I'm in a school of public health and I research mental health on college campuses, which, you know, the first day of class, it's very typical for a faculty member to, you know, introduce themselves and talk a little bit about their research. So one of the first things students know about me is that I study and care a lot about about student mental health. So I talk about my research, and I think that really opens up a, a dialogue in my classrooms and one that I'm, I just feel really fortunate to be able to have with students. I also think a lot about some of the really easy ways that we can, like I said, alleviate stress. So having assignments due at 5 p.m. And I actually tell students the reason that this is due at 5 p.m. is because if it's due at midnight, students are going to work until midnight. If it's due at 9 a.m., you're more likely to pull an all-nighter. Even if it's due at 9 p.m., you're less likely to have dinner and stop and, you know, stop your workday at, at a normal time. So I always have my assignments due at 5 p.m. for that reason. I really try to be very flexible with students. I think a key skill as we think about higher education as imparting kind of life skills to students is communicating and communicating proactively about your needs. And so I tell students, I want very much to be flexible and to accommodate your needs of situation that I'd like to avoid is 4.30 p.m. before an assignment is due, I get an email from you that, you know, that you're not going to be able to submit your assignment. If that is just, you know, the outcome that has to happen for for some circumstance, fine. But if you know the day before you're really feeling stressed, you're not where you need to be with this assignment, email me now. Like that's, it's your responsibility to do that proactively and know that on the other end of that email is a person who's going to try to, to give you the benefit of the doubt under, you know, any circumstance. 
I also include information about mental health services in my syllabus. I don't go over every single assignment and note that's in my syllabus. That's students' responsibilities to really thoroughly read it through and ask questions. But two of the main things that I always read verbatim from the syllabus and point out on the first day are the mental health services that are available to students and a statement about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the classroom. And I think that also really sends a message to students. I try to make myself available for one-on-one appointments. I teach graduate students primarily, and I teach a relatively small class, so that's not feasible for all faculty. But I did, you know, 15-minute check-ins with each of my students this semester, which more than anything was an opportunity to understand where they were, you know, where are they living? What are what are their other life circumstances that they're dealing with right now? I also talk about my own challenges and you know, ways that I I definitely have started class a couple times this semester already and just said, like, I have not slept very well over the past several nights. I don't know about anybody else, but this, you know, this moment in time has been really stressful for me. And I think that also really resonates with students. One other thing that I think faculty can be particularly compassionate about and also should be educated about is leave of absence policies. So being able to really destigmatize that conversation, talk about that, you know, if students are considering a leave of absence to be thinking about that for many students is the best option. That's an opportunity for them to take the most advantage of their learning if they, you know, take a break from school and then are able to come back. So I think faculty need to kind of have language in a way to navigate a conversation with a student for whom a leave of absence may be a really wise and good decision for their mental well-being. So yeah, I think my experience, and again, this is a little skewed because I'm in a school of public health. And so I, I work with a lot of folks who think about prevention, but I, I feel really fortunate to work with colleagues who are thinking a lot about student mental health. And I also feel that the data that we're going to collect next semester from faculty across the country are going to help us identify the variation that exists across faculty and their attitudes and perceptions. And then we might be able to tailor programs to say, you know, this group of faculty are less knowledgeable about mental health, and we might really want to focus some attention there. And my hypothesis would be that schools of public health are going to kind of be higher on, in terms of the, the knowledge. Yeah, yeah, you would imagine. I think those strategies are so great and interesting, and they really reflect this idea of a shared responsibility. It's obviously not 100% faculty responsibility for students' mental health and mental well-being. Students share that responsibility as well. And the 5 p.m. idea is so easy and simple and makes so much sense, but you don't see that very often. So that is So great. We'll end with a last few words of advice and comment. Zoe, anything you'd like to add? I would just like to start by saying that I'm thrilled that some of the advice I give faculty over here are things that Sarah has tried and have worked for her. It's it's validation for me that the tips I'm giving are ones that, quote, real faculty use. So uh, thank you for that. For students, my words of advice would be to ask for help until you get it. And that if you find someone you don't think is helping, there are people at universities who dedicate their lives to ensuring that students are successful and that you should ask for help until you get it and don't give up. And for the faculty, once again, to impress upon them how important they are, particularly, I'd like to stress what Sarah said about appropriately sharing their own challenges and successes. 
and how important that can be for a student who looks up to them. Students don't owe the counseling service anything, but they want their faculty to notice them, to respect them, to value them. And so they really are in a unique role. And we look forward to future partnerships based on the results of this survey to ensure that we are all doing the best we can for our students. Thanks, Zoe. Sarah, any last thoughts? Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Zoe said. And I guess I think of two two things that come to mind in addition to that is, one, just from, from my perspective, I can't not talk about the importance of data and needs assessments. And so right now, as colleges are faced with so many decisions and in terms of their budgets, their bottom lines, and where to invest and where to, you know, reduce their budgets or add to budgets in certain areas, I would just say having data around mental health and the needs of students is just so important. And there's, you know, so many initiatives, including the Healthy Mind Study, the National College Health Assessment is another wonderful survey available to to college campuses. So really, you know, making sure that decisions right now are, are driven by data and the needs of students and having student voices in terms of the programs that colleges are investing in. And then, I think really prioritizing equity and thinking about the ways that this is a moment where there's such an intersection between structural racism, access to mental health services, the socio-political moment, COVID, and the inequities that that's emphasizing and underscoring and perpetuating. All of that means that right now, colleges and universities need to be really, really proactively thinking about and prioritizing and protecting the well-being of students of color and other marginalized populations. Thanks, Sarah. It really is the perfect storm for so many students right now. So it is a great time for colleges and universities to refocus and really think about this issue. So thanks so much to both of you for being here and sharing your experiences and insights. It's been such an insightful and great conversation. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. This has been The Quadcast, a production of the Mary Christie Foundation. For more information about the foundation, visit us online at marychristiefoundation.org. While you're there, please check out our other products, the Quarterly and the MC Feed. You can subscribe to the Quadcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating or review. It really helps us out. I'm your host, Dana Humphrey. Thanks for listening.